Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. So I uh, just get set up here. Just invite you to open your Bibles to First Timothy chapter one. First Timothy chapter one. And we'll be in verses five and six this morning, just continuing in the context of what has been written there. Let's join our hearts in prayer as we commit this time to the Lord. Lord God, we are thankful. We thank you for gathering us this morning. We're thankful for your love for us in Christ Jesus. And even at this time, we are, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, that we give you thanks for this table that reminds us of Christ and his work and our response to him. As we come to your scripture, we ask that you would bless us, that you would open our eyes to what you would want us to see, so that you would be glorified in all things. So we ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Puritan Pastor Thomas Watson put it rather well in illustrating the effect of false doctrine. He said this, suppose that you had a friend in the hospital with a deadly contagious disease. If you spent many hours next to your friend, what do you suppose is more likely to occur? That you would infect him with your health or that he would infect you with his disease? And such was the warning from the Apostle Paul last sermon for the church at Ephesus about the deadly and contagious disease of different doctrine. And Timothy was boldly reminded to beware of the web that is spun by false teaching. We saw that in verses 3 and 4. In fact, right up to verse 11 is very important, setting the stage for true Christ-centered doctrinal practices that will be unfolded in this letter for us. Therefore, the biblical method of building up the church body begins with and also ends with truth. Truth proclaimed, truth received, truth practiced. And this is the only foundation for us to prepare to put off what is dishonoring to the Lord in the church and to put on that which is pleasing to the Lord for his church. And if we don't submit to the word of God, then there may be very real consequences. God loves us, and he will discipline us whom he loves. And therefore, this section is written with a very serious tone. So basically from chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, specifically. Because what is at stake is the future of Christ's church. You might recall in Revelation, the first church that is addressed is this one, the church in Ephesus. And when the Apostle John wrote about it about 30 years later, after Paul's warning in 1 Timothy, this was Jesus' assessment of the church at Ephesus. He said this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lamps, golden lampstands. 
I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so Jesus' assessment was that the Ephesian church was persevering through all the years being engaged in various ministries of the church. The church had a grasp of doctrine, even could identify a false teacher among them, namely Nicholas. And his name means one who conquers the people. And he had built a group of followers around him which were aptly named the Nicolaitans. And his goal was to conquer the people and attempted to do so by false teaching, which expressed itself in false practice. And that was an abomination to Christ. Christ hates practices that he did not establish for his church, for they take away from his honor, his power, his glory, his majesty. It's adding of, to his word. Yet in this very difficult church environment, the Ephesians pressed on patiently, even suffering. And however, in the midst of it all, she lost her passion for Christ. Christ was to be their first love and was their first love. And therefore now the church was not completely Christ-centered. All they did was no longer motivated by their love of their Savior, and therefore Jesus voiced an imperative for them to remember. That is the imperative, remember. Remember how they were a healthy church that exalted Christ because they loved him deeply and faithfully followed his word. They didn't add, they didn't subtract. They followed the word of God. And yet now, they have fallen from such blessings and Jesus commanded them to repent. They needed to change their mind about their dire situation to see it Christ's way and to be resolved. Resolved to make Christ rise, against to pro rise again to prominence, to rightful domination as king, as head of the church, Lord of the church, and the church's people, you and I who are believers, born again. What was needed through this rebuke was the response of the church to seek revival in the church. And if they fail in repenting, then there is a clear consequence. Their lampstand would be removed, which means that it would be the death of that church. Today, as we continue in on this passage of 1 Timothy, we discover that Timothy was to continue in the character of a true teacher, found in verses 5 and 6. 
And what Timothy and all believers are to do is to be faithful in furthering doctrinal order in the church, to go back to the word of God and interpret it properly and to apply it rightly so that we do not deviate it, whether by adding or subtracting from the word of God. The foundations of our faith, which God establishes for us for Christ-centered practice in his church, are to be obeyed. And so in today's continuation, we have two simple observations that will help you grow in truth. And we find the goal of sound teaching in contrast to the aberrant practice of false teachers. So the two simple observations is this. Verse 5, on track. Verse 6, off track. And so let's begin and look at verse 5, on track. And this is the point. This is the doctrinal point that I want you to see in this verse and really in this context because uh, it is a context. And I've kind of divided it a little bit smaller segments just to really lay out the foundations of this letter as we get into the other chapters. And so the point is, in verse 5, those who are on track are gospel-centered and they will glorify Christ in his church. Being on track was the unrelenting reminder for Timothy to continue in true doctrinal teaching. The most basic definition of the word doctrine is this, quote, a set of ideas or beliefs that are taught or believed to be true. Okay, a set of ideas or beliefs that are taught or believed to be true. And I'm going to keep on referring to this definition of doctrine as we go through these two verses. And therefore, in order to be faithful in being a person who holds to a set of biblical ideas or beliefs that are taught in the word of God and are true, we must be on track with the biblical goal of learning and living out truth. Timothy's purpose is set out in a positive way, and it states in verse 5, and the aim of any true teacher's charge, the aim of his charge, is clearly made known by the Apostle Paul. The word charge is a military term, a passing on a strict command, order, or instruction. And such faithful practice includes that the overseers, elders, pastors, is the same man but different titles to describe the work of the same man, of the church exercise their Christ-delegated authority by three things. First, unapologetically holding firm to sound doctrine. Second, to be practicing it in their lives, and then they are able to, number three, teach it to others. That avoids hypocrisy. In this practice, these men are to, as the scripture says, to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to boldly reprove, correct, rebuke, exhort, and train in righteousness by the word of God, which brings to light the existence of different doctrine and therefore false practices. We live in an age when, where people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears 
They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and therefore reject Christ and his word. So the charge was very serious to Timothy and likewise to the church. In the broader sense, the aim of any true teacher's charge, this applies to all teaching throughout the church age and to this day, it is a call to faithfully implement the complete moral charge of the word of God. Sound doctrine, of course, is our safeguard against error. Yet what the end goal that biblical teaching accomplishes, Paul lays out very clearly, and that is love. The end result that Timothy was to attain to was to produce a manifest love from God, which is the truest kind of love. And that love, the Greek word is agape, and probably most of you understand that word. That agape is the most important character of a true teacher. The love referred to, which God commands us all to practice, is a divine God centered supernatural love which desires the best for God's church through biblical exposition and just keeping in this context of, of the charge of Timothy leading to exegetical ministry a position of ministry carrying out the word of God faithfully it's a love which fosters a personal sacrificial commitment to others agape is the highest form of love so a true teacher is on track as he toils and labors in the word faithfully so that Christ's people will be nourished and then grow deep, grow deep in their spiritual maturity and practice. And this love would be accomplished in the church through instruction of anyone who had embraced false teaching, whether by commission or omission. It is a practical outworking of the ministration of God, which is by faith, which was spoken of in verse 4. And so the most loving thing that we can do as believers is to tell people the truth. And the starting point of love is the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's all its fullness so that the lost hearer may respond and then be saved, just like many of us here this morning. Somebody told us the truth, and that changed everything. And then as a new creation in Christ, the saved can then begin to love others properly in a Christ-honoring fashion. And when this is present in your life, then it is possible to carry out the greatest commandment that Jesus spoke about, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That becomes absolutely possible. Yet you might think or ask, you know, how can we develop that kind of love in our lives? Or in other words, how can we be on track as true teachers who are, have that characteristic of love? And there are three aspects that is, are laid out in verse 5 that need to be present in our lives as a, as a general application of this text and working together in unity before love is accomplished in our lives, which is the culmination of a pure heart 
and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so the first aspect of being on track as a true teacher is a pure heart. In our day and age, when someone talks about heart issues, we know that they're referring to one's emotions, their feelings. But biblically speaking, the heart represents more. It is the person's complete mental, emotional, volitional, and moral control center. Some people refer it to the brain. The Bible usually says a heart. The heart represents the whole of a person, or our words, our thoughts, our deeds. And so before God and man, the heart must be pure. And this is within the character of a true teacher. This is how the psalmist defines a pure heart in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 5. He says, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The second aspect of being on track as a, as a true teacher is a good conscience. The conscience represents self, as uh, this is a description, actually it was one of my professors. Uh, he says, the conscience represents the self sitting in judgment on itself. It is the self-conscious and rational element within man. Our conscience must be good. Meaning it is upright, it is clear, it is perfect. A conscience that is not seared to impure, self-centered, and wicked purposes. So it is a conscience that is Christ-centered. A good conscience is one that is freed and clear of the weight and guilt of sin, which can only be removed by Christ's forgiving grace. And when our hearts are regenerated by Christ and his salvation, it works together with our conscience to decipher between what is right and what is wrong in response to the word of God concerning ourselves, which is according to his righteous standard as a God-given faculty to guide us. The conscience is not perfect, but God has given us consciences, and they are to be good. When our conscience functions properly, and it is trained to function properly through true teaching of God's word, through that study, that difficult study of God's word, and coming to the right interpretation, it won't condemn us. Because our lives are upright. This is how the scripture defines what we call a good conscience. And it must be present in the character of a true teacher. Finally, the third condition that needs to be present in the character of a true teacher in order to possess biblical love is a sincere faith. And that word sincere can be translated literally as without hypocrisy or unhypocritical or unfeigned. True faith of course, cannot be insincere since it comes from the Lord. But what Paul is contrasting is the kind of faith where one is self-deceived and think he or she has faith in Christ, so self-deceived as to being saved, or even worse, intends to make others think he or she has, has it, therefore it's superficial, 
and only on the surface kind of faith. That's not true faith. And that's what it seems that these false teachers in the church of Ephesus possessed, a false faith leading to false teaching. But in contrast, what is required is a sincere faith that utterly trusting God with an absolute depth of heart in all matters and firmly rooted in Jesus Christ. Nourishing ourselves in the word of God, embracing his gospel will bring about a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The product of this kind of life in you and I will bear as its fruit love. That is the fruit. And we manifest that kind of description of life, that character in our life. Resting upon the foundation and the chief goal of being on track, which is sound doctrine. God is love, and his love comes to us as he designed when we are completely yielded to him through faith in Christ and to put off the sin of self-centeredness and to pray for this, to pray for humility, that God would cause humility to arise in our lives. And often he does that through trials. so that we might come forth with the attribute of God, which is to be thoroughly reflected in you, which is love. Now, as we continue in verse 6, we find the consequence of being off track. And this is the doctrinal point that I want you to see. Those who are off track undermine the gospel and work against God's glory. Those who are off track undermine the gospel and are working against God's glory. So to start this verse, we want to be reminded of the basic definition of the word doctrine, but now in light of the false teachers at Ephesus, they were off track because they operated in a set. So here's the definition, but using it uh, in the sense of being off track. So they operated on a set of unbiblical ideas or beliefs that are not taught in the word of God and therefore are not true. And such doctrine is missing and perverting the biblical goal of teaching. And with the goal of all preaching, teaching, and even to the extent of a biblical approach to the Christian's ministry is off track, or in other words, set aside or lost, a crisis will arise. A new unbiblical movement will dawn. And they're really just around the corner, if not outside the door of the church. That's a reality. And that's why this section is so important. And Paul lays it out very soberly. When we look at the situation at Ephesus, we can find that the crisis epicenter are the false teachers, cert these certain persons. And so it is that some men in the church were swerving away from what the goal is in verse 5. That word swerving has a sense of having missed the mark. It is like the false teachers were firing an arrow at a target and of, of truth, 
that bullseye of truth, and they're firing these arrows there, and every single time they miss miserably. They do not know the word of God correctly. They do not implement and practice God's word faithfully, so they are off target doctrinally by swerving away from true biblical instruction which seeks to edify and to build up the church in love in the body of Christ. They promoted their instruction to those who would hear. Remember the Nicholas? His followers are the Nicolaitans. These people would hear. They're just hungry for anything, itching ears. But what they offered was altogether useless for it was based upon their self-love of an impure heart and a seared conscience and therefore a questionable faith. At Ephesus, the false teachers came to a point in their lives when they began swerving from the right path, which is the goal of the gospel, and have wandered away, that is, they took a turn, they drifted aside, and landed outside of doctrinally sound instruction and practice, and therefore not orthodox. And so they were off track. Instead of reaching the destination, the false teachers winded up off course, lost, as Paul continues, into vain discussions. Conversations that are foolish about strange doctrines, myths and endless genealogies and the like, and in fact were futile speculation. That's what Paul dealt with in verses 3 and 4. We looked at that last week. They constantly fail to accomplish the goal of the gospel life for the church, and since such vain ideas existed and were practiced in the church, it was choking the life of the church. So what does that look like? What does being off track look like in the church? And this is a frequent and usual usually a very innocent example of being off track, the infiltration of false doctrine. I'm not saying that they're false teachers or there's false teaching uh, that is intentional. And maybe we could use this illustration label as entry-level false teaching because it's not heresy. And giving the benefit of the doubt, it's well-meaning. But going back to the definition I gave for doctrine, it is nonetheless a set of ideas or beliefs that are taught or believed to be true. And so here's the situation. And if you've been in the church long enough and you've been faithful to go to prayer meetings, and that's a plug for a prayer meeting here, our church, Wednesdays, first and third, Wednesday night. Maybe at a prayer meeting you hear this and uh, somebody's praying and says, I thank you, Lord, for bringing us here to pray to today. And even though, uh, Lord, we are a very small group, you have promised for the, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And, and then the prayer continues. Very innocent. Sounds great, actually. It's very catchy. And when this somewhat interesting phrase or is actually biblical words of Jesus, is very words of Jesus. It's said out loud and others embrace it without being a Berean and questioning, okay, that comes from the Bible, but what does that actually mean? Then it is spread to others' own prayer groups 
same phrase, because who doesn't want Jesus to be with us when we pray? Who doesn't want him to be in our midst? Could we say that this is an innocent proliferation of false doctrine? Not saying heresy, but something that we can grow in if this is related to you. And so what is stated comes from Matthew 18, verse 20. And due to time, I ask you to study that passage on your own. So more homework. Hope you're doing your homework. And to pay attention to the three most important things about proper biblical interpretation, which is what? Three most important things about biblical interpretation, right? Absolutely. Context, context, context. Spoiler alert. I'll make the point now, what Jesus said in verse 20 of Matthew 18, is a doctrinal point related to what is commonly known as church discipline and not prayer meetings. So go back, go back and read that section. And therefore, when verse 20 is used in terms of a church prayer meeting, a set of beliefs that are repeated, are repeated prayed out loud, loud in, a sense, in a sense taught, taught and they believe to be true, may be sincere, sincere but sincerely wrong. Logically, Logically, you look at you this look at verse, this verse and what Jesus said in the light of context of church, church discipline uh, is, is of, of when using it in prayer meetings, meetings just doesn't make, make sense. sense. For if one, if one, uh, uh, one of our, our Wednesday night prayer meetings, meetings uh, it, happens it happens that only that one only person one shows, shows up on that particular, on that particular Wednesday, Wednesday night. night, does that mean does that, that Jesus, Jesus is not there? Because that challenges the greater doctrine of God, God or Christ's Christ, omnipresence, omnipresence, that he's, he's everywhere. everywhere. And it also and challenges, challenges the biblical reality. reality. If you are a born-again believer, Jesus Christ is indwelling in you. So does that make sense? It doesn't make sense. And does it mean that Jesus only answers prayer when there is more than one person praying? And so these are theological clues that such presumption is off track and seriously undermines the word of Jesus. So how important is this entry-level illustration? If you are desiring that our church increases in spiritual health, and that's all what we desire, then we are to guard ourselves from any aspect that is off track. And then it is supremely important, as the scripture says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does, not, does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. The spiritual health of our church is founded upon faithful, accurate teaching, and it leads to faithful implementation and practice of truth. We are to be people of truth. Doctrine builds. It unites the people of the church. When false teaching exists, false practice exists, which divides the church, and it will make the church sick. If one starts at a faulty point, the most likely result is the outcome will be a a destination which was unintended and theologically tenuous. 
As a pastor has stated of false teachers, quote, do not make acceptable theological mentors. So false teachers do not make acceptable theological mentors. Sitting at the feet of the children of Satan to learn doctrine is both foolish and dangerous. And so we can learn a lot from those who hold to a different doctrine at Ephesus that Timothy had to deal with. They swerve as a warning, they, uh, sorry, they serve as a warning that failure in the moral realm leads to a perversion of the truth as their impure hearts were adrift to pretense since they are not focused upon the outworking of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the soundness of biblical teaching and practice. Those who possess different doctrine therefore also possess a guilty conscience instead of a good conscience, activated by their defiled heart. And finally, a person who embraces different doctrine is consumed by hypocrisy of faith and maybe even a false faith, faith in contrast to a sincere faith. In the end, it scars the teaching, it scars the teacher's life and that of their followers, and therefore it will not produce love for God in them. And therefore, one mark of a person who truly is a false teacher is that he rejects correction. There's a lack of humility. And so they are not trustworthy and lack, above all, love. Biblical love for the goal of their instruction was not love, but self-inflating, ego-chasing, to usurp authority and to try to be teachers of the law. That is verse 7. Lord willing, we'll get there. Next time, and so some more homework, just to, to further cement this in your minds, is to read 1 John 4, 5 to 19. 1 John 5, 4 to 19, it summarizes this very well. And therefore, Timothy was charged to preach and teach the Ephesians and the false teachers that one must strive to have love through a pure heart a good conscience and sincere faith, a faith without hypocrisy. That was the goal of his instruction. That is our charge, too, as believers. And Timothy was to give termination orders to those who fostered different doctrine in the hopes of steering them from shipwrecking their faith and that of others in the church. And that calls for love. It's a difficult thing to do, but it calls for love because as you see someone shipwrecking their faith, you love them enough to bring truth into their lives. As we close, each one of you can be reminded and learn from the instruction that Paul gave to Timothy, that we should always be humble and mindful of having the simple aim of being always ready to listen to the truth, sound doctrine. Don't get so distracted with unbiblical movements that distract you from the real movement of God and his priorities for you and his church. 2 Timothy 3, 5, quoted this before, says, avoid such people. And as you do that, you will avoid their web.
and therefore focus on and in practical ways uphold the practice of truth in the local church. Also, we should be committed to, avo be, to avoiding unnecessary involvement with questionable theology and its faulty practices. And when we keep, uh, when we keep bad theological company, we corrupt good theology. When we entertain false doctrine, we expose ourselves to coronavirus. We desperately need to foster a sincere and a consistent faith that is ruled by Christ with the result of God-centered love towards others. Proclaiming truth is the most loving thing that you can be involved with. And therefore, we should not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There always will be new and strange doctrines and practices coming, knocking at our door, even when we aren't looking for them. But we need to be cautious not to let those movements derail us. We need to be on track. And so I exhort you to remember what Jude wrote to the believers in the church. So God gets the last word here. Beloved. While I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word, which is clear when we desire to dig into the depths your word into the very mind of Christ so that we are edified, that we are embracing truth, and not only embracing truth, but practicing truth. And then as we practice truth, we are able to teach truth so that our lives would not be hypocritical. Lord, we, we are not perfect, and you know that. But Lord, you have set a standard before us, and it is a high standard. And in Christ, when we humble ourselves before you, Lord, you will accomplish that for us so that we would be a glorious church, not so that we would be a glorious people, but above all, we would all see the glorious Christ. And so that is what we pray for this day. We give you thanks. Amen.